Before we get started for this week's show, I'd like to thank you all for tuning in with a special shout out to those who support us on Patreon. From just $2 US a month as a patron, you can access extended podcasts and other bonus content. This week we catch up on news and cricket around the world before catching up with Cricket's Everywhere man, Jared Kimber. Keep an eye out at EmergingCricket.com and our various social media channels and make sure to give us a 5 star rating and if you can, a review wherever you are listening to the show. Welcome again to another Emerging Cricket Podcast. I'm Daniel Beswick. You'll hear from Tim Culler and Nick Skinner in a moment with our guest for the week, Jared Kimber. But first, a wrap of all the action around the Emerging Cricket world. First to action on the European Cricket Network, a Narka Cricket Club has taken out the Bolkirka Stockholm Series, defeating Yugoron in the final, striking at over 200 Khalid Azizi and Sohail Saeed, made 46 and 43 respectively, providing the platform for a score of 151 for 7. In reply, Yugodon were unable to keep up in the chase, falling 71 runs short. To the Czech Republic and Bohemian Cricket Club has taken out the Super Series, chasing down a target of 70 against the Prague Barbarians Vandals at Scott Page Field. Abdul Farhad claiming figures of 3 for 16, with Zahid Mahmoud's 42 not out, guiding his side home. Meanwhile, arrests in the Indian city of Jaipur were made this week after the discovery of an illegal betting ring targeting European Cricket Network matches, with police seizing laptops and mobile phones worth approximately 13,000 US dollars as part of the operation. In a statement on the European Cricket website, founder Daniel Weston condemned the illegal activity, stating that measures are in place to weed out any wrongdoing. For more on the ECN, log on to EmergingCricket.com. To the top classer in the Netherlands, and it was a week of young guns with Vikram Jit Singh and Philippe Wassevan playing leading roles in wins for their respective sides. Vikram Jit fell one short of three figures in an 84-run win for VRA against HBS, while Boisavan made an unbeaten 65 in Vorberg's four-wicket win against ACC. Elsewhere, there were wins for Sparta, Punjab and HCC, who successfully defended 80, bowling Dosti out for just 50. Further north, and Simon Smith has resigned as high-performance manager at Cricket Scotland this week. Smith also worked as a strength and conditioning coach for the Scots and was part of their support staff during victories over Sri Lanka, England and their successful T20 World Cup qualifier campaign. To Africa and the Bet Barter Zambia T10 has concluded this week. Here's Isaac Lockett to wrap all the action in Lusaka. Going in to watch the Bet Barter Zambian T10 League, it is safe to say that both me and Kieran Holly, who reported on the tournament alongside me, knew next to nothing about the cricketing ecosystem that existed within Zambia. Prior to the tournament, there was the announcement of the four team squads, so we had knowledge surrounding the players partaking, but that was all. Taking place at the extremely scenic and high quality Lotus Sports Club ground in Lusaka, the tournament saw the Kitway Kings, Cowboy Stars, Indola Blitz, and the Lusaka Heats take to the field to compete for the title. Reflecting on the overall tournament, the standard was extremely high, which led to some fantastically competitive games. All the teams had their moments in the spotlight to show their quality, and there were plenty of mesmerising performances with both bat and ball. The tournament had everything a neutral spectator would want from a tournament, from the aforementioned high level of performance, to the shocks during the tournament, to a Cricket World Cup-like final with the conclusion of the tournament going to a super over. The player of the tournament was given to Connor Fletcher of the Indolder Blitz, a consistent opening batsman who was able to get his team off to a flyer, while also having the ability to be a dynamic presence behind the stumps with lightning reflexes and reliable hand. But the reality was that there were many players who could have been given this award, 
For example, James Zimber, who won bowler of the tournament with his slow left-arm orthodox bowling, would also, would also have been a perfectly suitable choice. Another thing worth mentioning is the phenomenal standard of wicket-keeping displayed. For me, that was one of the most impressive aspects of the whole tournament. The level of keeping displayed by Isaac Moabit, Fletcher and the other keepers was honestly a delightful surprise. The Cowboy Stars won the tournament and arguably deserved to, despite the group stage being dominated by the Indola Blitz. For me, however, this tournament was more than just a tournament focused on the winners and losers, but was an opportunity to learn about the talent from an African country and to discover what lies outside the more established cricketing nations. Zambian cricket, through the tournament, displayed that they had a fantastic facility and was a country which is brimming with potential and talent. The T10 format and the growth of digital streaming platforms such as YouTube allows us an insight into previously unknown cricketing entities and proves that the format is one which requires embracing to aid the spread of the sport that we love globally. That's all the news we have for now. For more, log on to EmergingCricket.com. But next, Nick and Tim chat to Cricket's Everywhere man, Jared Kimber. Hello, I'm Norman Vanua. I play for PNG. I am a bowling all-rounder, and you're listening to the Imagine Cricket Podcast. <laughs> well, tonight, Bez is out of the Emerging Cricket office, so it's just me, Nick Skinner, and Tim Cutler, and we're joined by a very special guest. Ooh. He started a few years back with his own blog, Cricket with Balls. He's worked for Crick Info, he's done TV, radio, written books, worked as an analyst for T20 franchise teams. Now he's back to hosting his own content with videos, articles, multiple podcasts. He's Cricket Media's Mr. Everywhere Man, Jared Kimber. Cricket Media's Mr. I just give me some money, I need a job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like I'll do anything. You're basically Dick Van Dyke, aren't you? The, the, uh, the one-man the one band. <laughs> I will Cricket Media for food. <laughs> I now understand like the renaissance man thing is just such so nonsensical it's just like trying to pay your mortgage <laughs> yeah Leibniz was he wasn't a genius he was just trying to get by wasn't he <laughs> uh, so we'll we'll start with the cpl draft which came out recently and a uh, bit of a punchy question up front what the hell do t20 franchise scouts look for because they're not looking at emerging cricket they're not looking at associate players i think uh i think you're being optimistic that there are t20 scouts in the cpl um Trinidad probably have them and we certainly have them sorry Guyana the GM of Guyana Omar Khan is very clever and probably does his research <laughs> outside of that I'd be shocked <laughs> uh I mean there was some really forget the emerging cricket side of things just there were some really obvious uh players that weren't taken uh within West Indies cricket culture someone like Yannick Otley you know some Obvious players that uh, would have been on my list out there. So yeah. So when when you look at emerging, it, it is tough because you look at you look at some of the records of some of these players. I'm trying to think of who I was looking at recently. Um, the all rounder from Nepal, uh, Case, uh, KC. Karan KC. Yeah, KC. He's got this incredible record when you look at international cricket, where he strikes at I don't know 190 against right arm seam, and uh, and you're like, wow. That's incredible. I have to get this guy in. And then you have a look at who he's made those runs against and you are like a bit like, ah, that, that, you know, you can't. And the problem is if you don't have a proper scout looking that up, you either make a decision 
which is flawed based on uh, the fact that he's done it against Venezuela um, or, you know, some random, you know, lowly ranked team that he played one game against, or you ignore them altogether. So you kind of get this sort of in the middle ground. I think a lot of, there just aren't many actual scouts when it comes to T20 cricket. And so uh, the CPL is a very, what would you call it? It's not quite a fully professional league. You know, it doesn't have scouts. So one of the first things I wanted to do when I was at St. Lucia was literally just hire a scout. And, And that wasn't even... That literally wasn't even for the um, emerging cricket guys. That was for the West Indian guys um, to be like, go out and get it. So I wanted a scout who was a former West Indian cricketer who had a base in America. So I basically covered the two different areas there. But yeah, when it comes down to it, uh, uh, it, it's essentially whispers and who did well. Most players are picked on who did well playing sort of club level cricket in Trinidad. So it's not the most professional league in the world. Well, we've seen a lot of uh, recommendations and this is especially for the America's picks. You know, Ali Khan came in on, on the recommendations of Bravo. I think it was basically just he got Bravo out. And so Bravo thought, oh, well, he must be good. But uh, so in on that sort of um, you, you made the point about the standard of cricket. It's a pretty nebulous term, but I guess, do you have any ideas about how you might create a more rigorous way of measuring, you know, standard of cricket and, and comparing between different levels? It's hard for some of the sort of mid-level associate teams because we don't have enough information on them. But once you get to the level of, you know, the, the last qualifiers, for instance, we can tell that Oman is a good cricket team and that they have a knuckleball specialist in the middle and uh, they have some top quality batsmen. Uh, we know that Kenya have some top quality batsmen. When they play Scotland or Netherlands or uh, Oman or Ireland, UAE before the entire team was done <laughs> for match fixing, you then have a bit of an idea. So you do have to go through. And, and the problem is that we don't have a very good system because uh, cricket doesn't work properly. So you have to do a bit of a projection on those sorts of players. My thing is if, you know, it doesn't matter if I'm looking at Benny Howell who plays in England or if I'm looking at Karan KC, I'm based Basically, what I'm looking for is them doing the same kind of figures that they have in a lower level as they would have in the higher level, right? So, uh, you know, with, with Benny Howe, the big thing you get with Benny Howe is, oh, he's only good on small pitches, right? So if the pitch is and low, he's great. So I just go out and go, okay, if, if that's fair, then when I look at his record on test playing grounds, that will that will come up. And the same thing if I'm looking at uh, um, uh, who who is the... Um, Canadian Pakistani bowler, Saeed. Saad bin Zafar, yep. Saad bin Zafar, yeah. Yeah, so I had a bit of a look at him. I thought he was someone who certainly should have gone in this draft. You have a look at him and you have to you have to look at his numbers separated. So you almost have to look at him on a game-by-game basis because he doesn't have 80 games. If he had 80 games and he, was, he had an economy rate of 6.4, chances are he is of that level. But if he's only 20 games or 25 games, you actually do have to dig into it a little bit more. Be like, well, when he has played at this level, and you see it a lot, there's Sri Lankan cricketers, there's a lot with the Sri Lankan cricketers Sri Lankan cricketers don't get picked up for the same reason that the associate cricketers don't get picked up is they don't have a strong local league and they my, my thing would be that of the major teams they're probably the ones who get overlooked the most and it's the same for uh you know the Scottish cricketers who have obviously proved and, and the Dutch cricketers who have obviously proved themselves at that level they're still not getting the the other opportunities they should so you have to go through it and that's where the problem is if you have a professional scout that's not a problem because the professional scout that's what they would do if you have a bloke who doesn't really understand how the draft is going to work who has been thrown in whose captain is telling him he has to pick the Trini boys and whose owner is saying you can't pick anyone um, whose name looks Pakistani who and all these things happen because I've had them happen <laughs> I was going to say this sounds like it's coming from real life experience here <laughs> many many times over and then the coach says something like um, we need 
need, we need an experienced player. I've got this guy. And then you go, well, he's retired. And they go, yeah, but he could still do a job in the middle order, <laughs> right? So even if you are scouting or being the general manager, there's a certain point where it, it actually becomes quite hard. You spend a lot of your time debunking very obvious things. I remember there was one particular player who was in, when I was working for Edinburgh Rocks, who was pushed on us by the ownership. And you could, I can understand why the ownership wanted him. And I literally had, my job that day was to make sure we didn't draft that person. <laughs> So instead of looking for the best players, I had to spend quite a bit of my time to make sure that every time a different person involved with the ownership said, well, we still think about this guy. And I was like, yeah, no, I can understand that. Of course, recently he played in a lower level of um, cricket and he went at 11 runs and over in 10 games. So he's maybe not the most ideal person to be picking in this side. He was a big name player who basically uh, no longer is a star anymore. And that, I think the owners were like, well, at least we get a big name player in. I was like, well, yeah, I mean, you can pick Sun Gavaskar to come play if you want. He's still going to strike at 34 and be grumpy the whole time. I mean, I would pay to watch that. <laughs> and he's going to get lost because he doesn't know that cricket is played in those three different nations that the slam was going to be held. Yeah, he'd, he'd be in all sorts. He thinks they should all be, but just the players should be going and playing in those test nations. Uh, and and uh, he's wearing whites as well, so he gets suspended. But, um, <laughs> uh, essentially, you know, that's that's the sort of stuff that, that does happen. And so what you're talking about is what would be if we had a professional league. So if we had scouts and then we we were actually looking at it properly. You know, Dan Weston um, and, and some other analysts out there have systems about projecting these sorts of players. The problem with associate cricket is that there isn't enough of it and isn't played regularly enough. And that isn't a problem just for associate cricket. That's a problem pretty much for every league in the world. It's actually very hard to tell if anyone's any good at T20 cricket until they're played in three leagues. And by then they're already in the system. Then they'll get jobs for the next two years anyway because they know the coaches and the captains and the owners. Uh, so yeah, it, it does feel like a bit of a um, sort of a, a merry-go-round where you know once you're on the circuit it's it's kind of hard to get off one one of the guys that came up that we've spent a lot of time talking about is Kamal Levrock who um obviously smashes it a long way um and we've been completely baffled that basically no one's picking him up for T20 cricket but an interesting thought came up from Peter Delapena and his theory is that bowlers have a much easier time uh, getting noticed whereas hard-hitting batsmen are you know a dime a dozen Mm, it's a fair one. I think in general, that being the first person from a particular country, you'd be better off to become some kind of a mystery spinner. So, you know, you, you, want, you want to be able to bowl uh, maybe, you know, wrongmans or, uh, you know, out the front of your hand deliveries or something like that. So that makes sense that, you know, Lamachoni, if you look at Lamachoni's figures, there were other Nepalese bowlers in that league who were out bowling him when he got all the attention, but they were stock standard left arm finger spinners or, you know, crusty old seam bowlers and those sorts of things. And I think that there is a certain, I remember, I, I mean, I was involved with Bangalore when he was coming through and they were saying to me, we've got to pick this kid, we've got to pick this kid. And I was like, well, there are other bowlers in the pool that are doing better. If you can show me, you know, a proper research and you've got him into the nets and you've got footage of him close up, we can all have a look at him and make a good decision. But essentially he was he was picked on the hype of who he was rather than anything else. And, and you know, Rashid Khan probably is a very similar uh, player to that. Uh, Majib is another similar player to that. Muhammad Nabi was an obvious T20 gun and he wasn't getting any gigs because he bowled right out arm off spin. And let's be honest, it's dog ordinary off spin. It just happens to be that he's very clever and very skillful and smashing a few seamers around. Mm. And it took him a lot longer to build the career than it did. Rashid Khan just went bang. And if you look at the pure numbers of the impact that the two players have on a cricket team, Mohamed Nabi is not far behind him at all. So I think that 
I think that's a very fair thing. I also think that there needs to be a bit of a big bang. So I think with, with, with um, Sandeep, there was a bit of a big bang in that, you know, he went to Cutler's Blitz and as it's known internationally. <laughs> that was the official name was the Cutler Blitz. <laughs> yeah, he, he went there and Michael Clark talked about him and all those sorts of things. So you then have a bit of it. You have a little bit of a hype at that point. Where have Bermuda played that, you know, that, that Levelock would have had that opportunity? You know, people don't look at the, uh, at the um, World T20 qualifiers enough because there aren't scouts, essentially. So he has to have played against someone. He would have need to have had a trial. So a lot of, a lot of these guys, and I think Lemachano did have a trial. Majib had a trial. A lot of the young West Indians have trials. If you have a trial in the IPL, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be picked up in the IPL, but it does mean that someone within the professional structure will have seen you. My guess is that isn't happening with the Bermuda cricketers at this point. I could be wrong with that. But if, you, if no one's seen you and occasionally you just pop up on the international level, I think those sorts of things actually cause a bit of a problem. Uh, we know that there are cricketers from Singapore, uh, Oman. As I said, there's a knuckleball bowler in Oman. I always forget his name, but he bowls in their middle overs. Um, and he is, and I talked to the Scottish players afterwards. I said, you've got to watch this guy. He can really bowl. And, and they were like, yeah, we've played him a couple of times. And they really struggled to get him away. Um, I know how good he is, and I know that you could plant him into a league if you wanted to. But for sake, I can't even get Benny Howell into a into a good league. I mean, there are so many good cricketers from major nations. Anton Devsic literally was lighting T20 cricket on fire, and no one would give him a gig. Luke Ronke can't get back into the IPL. It's not a professional setup, T20 cricket. It's not run correctly. So it's not like there's, it's not just the emerging cricketers. It's right across the board. There is a huge talent drain because people don't understand what a good T20 cricketer is. And then there aren't enough long leagues with good players in them that we can test all these players in. Yeah, it's, you know, it's funny looking at um, stuff like you know, Wigmore's book, Cricket 2.0, and how cricket sort of portrayed as this hyper-technical uh, analyze into an inch of its life. But then you're hearing from the other side that it's sort of all held together with duct tape and a, and a word to your mates. Yeah. Do you think you talked about um, Nabi and Rashid Khan and, and, you know, we've seen a few other Afghans pick up some, some fairly hefty contracts of late. Do you think just the mere fact that Afghanistan is a full member now, has that helped Afghanistan fringe players to be sort of seen as, oh, well, they, they, they must be pretty good if they're a full member? I think they were seen enough at the top level by that point that we knew it wasn't a fluke. I, I know it's a little thing, but Rashid Khan took 10 wickets in a first-class game against England Lions. That gets around that he's not just a flash in the pan. And then in 2016, he completely bamboozled England in that T20 game that Afghanistan should have beaten England in, in Delhi. Yeah. If you do that, it doesn't matter if you're a full test nation, I think, or not. I think once you start doing that, that the sort of hype happens. But there's also a really interesting thing. I, f- I forget the name of the book, actually, but it's one of Michael Lewis's book. It must be The Undoing Project, actually, where they talk about the, the opening chapter is all about Jeremy Lin, the basketballer. Yeah, Lin Sanity. Yeah. So Jeremy Lin absolutely tore up college basketball, but he played for Harvard. And the problem was that no good basketballer had come out of Harvard in about 40 years, right? So their first thing was, well, basketballers don't come out of Harvard. So yeah, he's dominated that league, but it's a shit league. The second thing was there'd never been an Asian American basketballer come through. They had Yao Ming and some good Chinese players come over, but they'd never had an Asian American kid grow up. So they had no one to compare him to. Right. And so Houston and Daryl Morey talks about this in the book. He basically like we couldn't get around our heads 
that there was no one to compare him to. So we just sort of pushed him to the side. Now, obviously, as you said, Linsanity then happens. He eventually gets picked up as a free contract. Uh, there are a bunch of things that people weren't measuring correctly at that time. So he's not a particularly fast athlete, but he has an incredibly fast first step. And in basketball, that's about 80% of what you need. Uh, if you're fast over the whole uh, length of the court, that's really good. But if you can get past someone who's standing in front of you with your first step, you're already, you're already away at the races half the time. That's what Jeremy Lin had. They didn't look at that. And the reason they didn't look at that is because he was Asian and they were looking for black kids who are athletic. They weren't looking for Asian kids who are athletic, right? Now, a similar thing happens with Leverock. A similar thing happens with Benny Howe. Uh, I'm trying to think that uh, Muhammad Nabi is maybe another good one. You, you see a lot of these players who there's no one who has done what they have done before them, right? And whether it is where they are from or whatever that sort of situation is. And you then suddenly get this position where you're just like, who do we compare this person to? So Rashid Khan is lucky in that we had other leg spinners that we could compare him to. And we had seen him on the international stage. There are many other players. I hate more. Didn't make any sense to me that he wasn't getting a go because he's one of the, I was saying, I did some work for his agent. And I was saying, you could sell this guy as the world's best 12th man. <laughs> Once he gets in the nets and he shows what he could do with the leg spin, and he's also a decent batsman, they'll probably play him in the 11. But you could literally sell him as the world's best 12th man. But how do you sell someone as the world's best 12th man when no one has done that before? Mm. Right? And it's those sorts of things where it is a problem. And that's where the emerging cricketers really have uh, a, a huge problem here, is literally being seen in the first place. We're, Everyone knows that Charles Amini should be playing in T20 leagues around the world, right? There's absolutely no doubt of that. I got drunk in a pub in the UAE and told him about this very aggressively. I don't know if he has an agent yet. Was that that beer that I bought you? You might have bought me a beer, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, I think that's that one you didn't pay back. Yeah, you didn't. Yeah, you... So- sounds like it. You went over, tried to recruit a player, and then left. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we had a good night, though. <laughs> so those sorts of things are like. So again, with Papua New Guinea, that we know there's probably what three or four guys in Papua New Guinea who could be freelance cricketers oh, around, around T T20, yeah, right. And and you know we're talking Bermuda and Papua New Guinea, uh, Oman, but those teams just aren't on the sort of general cricket radar at this stage. Now they will start to have and Mohammed Navid before he was a um, match fixer, or perhaps during when he was a match fixer. Sadly, <laughs> I, th- I think we still say alleged. Well, he hasn't. Didn't he come out and say he did it recently? Didn't he basically apologise for it? anyway? Alleged match fixer. Yeah, that was, I heard you. T- you talked to Radders. That was a great little chat you had. Uh, I know Radders <laughs> will be will be listening him. So. Again, you look at his numbers and you look at who he was good against, but there'd never been a sort of medium fast seamer, right arm, come out of associate cricket. So how do you compare them? And this is what the Undoing Project is a really interesting one. So basically, Moray says we had to stop thinking about play. We realized that we were doing it on a racial term. So when a, when a young, light-skinned black guy comes out and can shoot three-pointers everywhere, we immediately go, that's the next Steph Curry. Right, and uh, you 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 see it in cricket as well. You see, Ngidi gets he's the next Rabada, and so I, actually Ngidi is a very different bowler than Rabada, right? And you need to start looking at it in a completely different way. We're not even at that level yet in cricket, and so we're missing so many things. And I remember when I came back, I've got another friend who works in in sort of global sport, and we were talking about when I got the job as a general manager of Solution, and I was taking through all the things I wanted to do, and he goes, "I'm not being a dick. It's great that you're thinking about all these sorts of things, but aren't these just really?" obvious are these just things that cricket should already be doing and i went yeah i don't think i'm really revolutionizing things too much when i go into a team and i talk to an owner so a bangladesh premier league i talked to a team about coming in as a consultant and i said don't think about me as an analyst don't think about me as a general manager think about me as someone who does due 
diligent. That's what I do. Literally, I will go out and make sure all the boxes are ticked because no one in cricket is ticking all the boxes at the moment. And, you know, I, I know of a player who got drafted a couple of drafts back in the CPL because he bowled a couple of balls to a West Indian cricketer in the nets and he got drafted in the CPL. For f- sake, do a bit more work than three balls in the nets one time. I mean, I've bowled good balls in the nets. So I shouldn't be in the f- CPL. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting you talk about the, the mentality thing and how it relates to race and, and nationality. And I do wonder if that's uh, sort of a, a hangover from cricket's uh, cultural history, you know, the colonial and, and very conservative sort of history and, and whether that's sort of flowed down at an almost subconscious level to the way we, we think about the game. I mean, I don't think you need to overanalyze cricket's colonial past too much. Yeah, I mean, race and ethnicity plays a part in every single thing. Uh, that comes along ever <laughs> and, and uh, just in life really yeah at all times I mean Jofra Archer has been called lazy because he didn't bowl 95 miles an hour in every uh, every time and he was probably trying to get the ball to swing at times uh, we talk about the athleticism of black athletes and quite often uh, completely underestimate the athleticism of every other ath- athlete I mean Hardik Pandey is one of the most athletic cricketers in the world at the moment and uh, we're still talking about Andre Russell's athleticism and the poor old fella's got no uh, cartilage in his knees and can barely move these days so you know you've uh, there is there are racial stereotypes there are ethnic stereotypes there are colonial stereotypes I mean n- let's not forget when I started writing in cricket so what's that 13 years ago uh, people were still saying unironically that the reason India didn't have fast bowlers is because of how many vegetarians they have uh, you know the sort of nonsense that you hear sprouted as reasons for things happening it's, it's always like that so I think there are very there, cricket is a very cultural game in many ways so for instance I haven't seen Cutler bowl so I don't know what kind of bowler he is but my guess is that he's probably a very strong left arm finger spinner uh, much in the way of maybe, you know, Michael Beer or um, Suleiman Ben, Paul Harris, Ashley Dials type. I've been compared to Paul Harris, so that's a, that's a good one, yeah. Think about this. Have you ever seen one of those kinds of left-arm finger spinners from Asia? We don't see those kind of left-arm finger spinners from Asia. That is a very Western slash West Indian type of finger spinner, right? And there's a reason for that because... Uh, quite often, I don't know about Cutler, but Michael Beer was a seam bowler. Paul Harris was a seam bowler. The Ashley Giles was a seam bowler. Big, strong lads who sort of come over. You can't play pull shots off them, right? That doesn't exist in Asia, that kind of left-arm finger spinner, because the conditions are different and you grow different kinds of cricket. And then what we start to do then is we think, well, that's all you can ever do from that area. Whereas we kind of forget that Asia or India, for instance, it has different pitches in different areas and different kinds of cricketers in different areas. But... Maybe there are finger spinners like, like Ashley Giles out there in Asia, but they're picking this sort of more, you know, uh, Ravinder Jadeja and Murali Kartik type of, of left arm finger spinners because that's the Indian kind of finger spinner. And you see that uh, right across the, the board of when Australia don't go for dour opening batsmen. Ah, oh, no, you know, you've got to get out there. You've got to put your front foot forward and, and all this sort of nonsense. And it's like, actually, you know, Bill Laurie, uh, even though he was mocked for it, was a brilliant dour opening batsman. We have actually produced them. Corpse with pads, wasn't it? Yeah. We may be more known for slightly more attacking um, opening batsmen than other countries have had with Warner and uh, Hayden and even going back to Stackpole and Trumper, right? But we actually do create other kinds of cricketers. It's just that we get in our head as Australian cricket, you've got to get the attacking bloke out there that does this. You got to, I mean, Australian cricket is a perfect example of this. You've got to get the wrist spinner in. Steve O'Keefe's numbers prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he was completely underbowled as a top-level international cricketer. And the reason was is he bowled finger spin. If he'd bowled wrist spin, 
I mean, look at Nathan Lyon. Nathan Lyon got dropped after taking a seven-wicket haul. I mean, how? So we do this in this weird sort of cultural way, and it's a very hard thing to break. I mean, do you remember when every New Zealand cricketer was dour and then Brendan McCullum came along and basically played in a G-string? You know, (laughs) it's it's nonsense to think in this way, but we do. We convince ourselves in our own area. You know, uh, you you always hear this. It's very good in Australia. You know, Victorian cricketers, you know, very good state cricketers, but not very good international cricketers. New South Wales cricketers, not as good for their state, but great for... Nonsense. That doesn't make any sense. There's no, there's no, there's no reason why that is the case. Sounds like a bit of Victorian talking here, though. Yeah, you take the man out of it. <laughs> but it's, it's, that's my point, though. It doesn't matter. It's, it's a nonsense. What, once you think about cricket that way, you're automatically making mistakes, right? There's a reason why New Zealand haven't had a lot of great opening batsmen, right? And it's not because they haven't had a lot of great opening batsmen. It's because it is tough to open in New Zealand. And so all, whether it's at first class level or test level, all the records are dropped. And so New Zealand then, they, they rotate through these opening batsmen because they go, oh, he's only averaging 38. If you're averaging 38 opening the batting for New Zealand, you should be given the South Island, right? It, all of these things build into these sorts of cultures. And so, you know, we, we then throw colonialism on top of all that, which doesn't make it any, any easier. And there's also you know, the class thing. I mean, England cricket, uh, New Zealand cricket, Sri Lankan cricket, Indian cricket. They have such problems with classism within them as well. Yeah, and, and you, you, you know, when you start to say that you can't have bowlers from the south of England and you can't have batsmen from the north of England, you just realise how idiotic that is when you actually realise that the, probably the difference is up north it's really good for bowling and down south it's really good for batting. That's probably why that has happened. Well, I guess that that kind of leads into the the, the other perspective. And you, you've had some very close experience in, in that associate world when you worked as as due diligence manager or as analyst <laughs> for for Scotland. You know, what 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 were the struggles you saw being on the inside? I think I know your time at Solutia beforehand, and you you dealt with players from emerging nations. But do you see those same struggles from inside working in, in associate, both in that analyst capacity, but also more broadly? Yeah, I mean, it's it's quite an interesting thing, I think, to start with as an analyst, you go in and you have so little information on the players you're going up against. You know, Singapore, I had, I think, four full games on YouTube that I could go through. And if you've ever been to YouTube and some of those games are rain affected, some of the files are like seven hours long. So you either download them and take 83 gig of your hard drive and then edit them up into clips or you try and use them on 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 youtube and it's hard to go back to the exact ball that you need little things like that not knowing who a player was i remember you know there are some scottish players who have incredible memories that uh, someone like matthew cross who's played against everyone in associate cricket but he might have played against them he might have because he spent a lot of his time opening he doesn't know about maybe the middle order guys and the death guys and and so his his information is it's not that it's not great because it's brilliant information but it's not complete then you're trying to try and video with these guys because they are not famous players as well sometimes the other video analysts have put up the same clip for three different players and like you put out a video and one of the other players will be like no that's actually Muhammad Khan from Oman that's not Muhammad Khan from UAE or (laughs) all those sorts of things happen right these things happen a lot so you you get that sort of stuff but you also get the sort of it's a semi-professional field still and I didn't realize that as much going in maybe because the, the associate team I probably spent the most time around was Ireland at that point and you know I saw obviously uh, Hong Kong uh, through through you Cutler I, you know I was involved with a little bit um, I, I certainly sent time with other teams and talked to other teams and I thought I had a good idea but Ireland's professionalism as an associate was well above 
what you see from other teams and you realize you are going into a very semi-professional environment, especially like with diet, for instance, you know, watching some of the players. So we all stayed at the same hotel and, you know, like guys just eating pizza the night before a game and just being like, oh my God. Or, and, and this is even, you get this in the Caribbean sometimes as well, but not with the top level players, but players drinking full fat Coke and, and little things like that. When you realize that, you know, Virat Kohli hasn't eaten a carb in three years <laughs> and, you know, other players are on protein shakes and, uh, uh, you know, um, I don't know, vapors or whatever they're su- surviving on. <laughs> there is a huge step up in those sorts of things. And also little things like training. Like there's some really good players that I work with at Scotland. And and it's not just the Scotland players because, you know, I talk to the Dutch players quite a bit and, um, and, and the Papua New Guinea players and the Irish players. You realize there are just little things that they are not thinking about that top level professionals in Australia, England, India, South Africa. It's almost part of their system, if you know what I mean. So... So, for instance, me saying to some of the guys, you have to start practice bowling around the wicket more often. And then being like, well, you know, uh, I, I won't have to do it in a game. And I was like, but you might have to do it in a game. So you have to do that. And literally training, uh, well, working with the coaches on getting the net bowlers that match who we're going to face in the game. You know, literally going up. So I end up being best friends with all the UAE net organizers because I had to go up to them and go, I need a guy who can bowl a knuckleball. I don't care if it's good or not. I just need the boys to be able to see the ball not rotating down and get used to it. Do you have a left arm finger spinner who bowls at a low arm action? These sorts of things that I would think, this is what Australia is doing, right? So when Australia Australia brought over for the World Cup Asian spinners from India so they could practice specifically against Asian spinners. You know, I really, that's what they wanted to do. England had a, um, had Donovan, the Donovan, Donovan Mitchell, the um, former... Uh, CPL coach I don't think he's coaching anymore Uh, but you know really really good up and coming West Indian English coach they got him partly in the nets because he throws left arm throwdowns it's those sort that sort of attention to detail isn't isn't in their associate level game they're not even thinking about that because you know you got someone like Simon Smith Smudge who is the he's the team manager he is the fitness coordinator he is the high performance manager he is the travel coordinator He's the, you know, uh, make sure that the kits are okay. How do, you know, how do you get to that level? It's very hard. So you do realize how different it is. And so I think probably, and not just them, because I've talked to other associate teams, I frustrate them when I was just like, you guys aren't ticking the very basic boxes here that you could be ticking. And they're like, we're trying to keep the electricity on. And I was like, forget the electricity. You're playing daytime. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Just these are the things that you have to do. And it is, it's a very frustrating thing, I think, um, you know, coming in from where I did. You know, my first job inside cricket was working with David Warner and Kyron Pollard. You know, those are uber professionals who do kind of everything that they have to do to get the most out of their game. To go to that, to the sort of semi-professional level of associate cricket, it's not that the talent is worse, it's just they're not in the right setups. And then sometimes they just don't have the right thinking about it because they think, wow, it's not like I'm playing in the IPL. It's not like I'm playing for England. And, and you have to say... The, the, the way that you get to the IPL is by doing everything right all the way up. And it's not their fault because they come through that system and it is a semi, semi-professional semi system. So it can be frustrating and I probably piss them all off you know, more than anyone. You, you, you've talked a bit about how there's, there's a lot of gaps in the data in, in a lot of ways and especially at the associate level. One of the, one of the things that I've been very frustrated about is the way that wicketkeepers have basically become just batsmen who keep and I think you call them point fielders with gloves in one of your articles. And 
we've talked a little bit about this, but basically you, you told me that wicketkeeping metrics don't exist. So how do you think, um, or how do you, and, and maybe thinking more generally, how should cricket value wicketkeeping as a skill? Because the way I look at it is that, you know, you talk about the, an innings being 120, you know, events. Keepers are involved in all 120 of those events, whereas, you know, the most balls ever faced by a batsman in a T20 innings is 79 and the most ever by a bowler is 24. And so, you know, putting those together still doesn't get you to the minimum for a wicketkeeper. Yeah, I mean, it's it's such a tough one. We I don't think it can be fixed without spatial tracking. So that is going to, that's not going to be in, involved in um, associate level cricket for a very long time. Uh, I know that Cricket Australia were thinking about bringing it in for the big bash, um, but that was two years ago. I haven't heard anything since. I know that the 100 were thinking of doing it as well. The, and it'd be silly for the IPL. I don't know why IMG haven't got them involved with this because it's such a great nerd tool and it's expensive, but it's actually not that expensive for the, those levels of cricket. And the ICC hopefully will bring it in for a World T20, although I don't think they were for this one. Uh, essentially, spatial tracking or, or something like that, motionless tracking, whatever you want to call it, means that we can tell uh, when a ball is edged a meter from a wicketkeeper, we'll, we'll be able to tell over a period of time what percentage of time a wicketkeeper would actually get to that. So when, if MS Stoney doesn't move for any of those and every other wicketkeeper in the world does and they catch them 30% of the time, we know that he's letting, 30% of the time he's letting the ball past him. And, uh, you know, and we know MS Stoney was a really good example because he wasn't a big diver. He didn't really believe in diving because of the way he, he had his feet. But then you've got the other side of things of uh, we could then tell stumpings and how much all these things work. Where we are at the moment is we don't have anything like that. We don't know at this stage whether you need a batsman who can keep or a specialist wicketkeeper. I would guess, I mean, you talk about the 120 uh, balls that a wicketkeeper is involved in. Wicketkeepers are in, actually touch the ball, I think it's 18 to 22 times a game or something off the top of my head. So, and, and that's, that's when the ball goes through to them. Uh, so that's, you know, collecting wides, the odd play and miss, stumping chances and all those sorts of catches, all those sorts of things. So the ball does go through to them a fair bit, but then you have to work out, let's say it goes through 20 times, right? And you've got one wicketkeeper who is going to make one error every 20 balls and another wicketkeeper is going to make two errors every 20 balls. You then have to factor in if uh, how that will actually affect their batting and how much extra they can give you with the bat. And it may not be as clear-cut as one extra. Do you know what I mean? It, it, may, be, it may be like wins over replacement in, or VORP in basketball or something. So it gets very tricky once you get to that sort of, that sort of level. We honestly don't know. One of my, my interesting things is... Um, A.B. de Villiers was a point fielder who kept, essentially, um, to use my own phrase. And he, if you look at him, especially in test matches, but he did this in one days as well, he wouldn't automatically run up to the stumps of every ball. And I have seen international games where A.B. de Villiers has not run out a batsman because he hasn't been up at the stumps. Because he, it wasn't trained into him from birth to run up, at the, run up to the stumps, right? Now, we are not even factoring in that wicketkeepers aren't doing that. Also... Runouts are a huge part of, you know, I think 7% of all dismissals are runouts. So 3.5% are probably going to be at the wicketkeeper's end. You've got to start to factor all those things in until we actually start to look at those. It's really, it's going to go on a gut call. My thinking is that in certain situations in cricket, you need a specialist wicketkeeper. Asia is one of them. I think where you need a specialist wicketkeeper, whether it be for T20 one days or test match cricket, because keeping up at the stumps is hard and trying to get amateurs to do it is a ridiculous thing i think in most places like australia south africa perhaps new zealand west indies you can have a batting specialist wicketkeeper 
And England might be one of the other few places in red ball cricket because the ball swings so late, you might need a specialist wicketkeeper again. But it's, it's a really interesting question, but there is no answer. And we are looking at how professional cricket is. We're maybe 15 years away from knowing this, sadly. <laughs> so 15 more years of me complaining about point fielders with gloves until the... Yep. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so the wicketkeepers who aren't being looked at, uh, left arm orthodox and, and leggies have become a bit of a cheat code. And you, you've talked about Rashid Khan and Sandeep and, and Majib and perhaps getting highlighted and picked ahead of others with and without trials. Do you think that batters are going to adapt and be able to play these better and all good players of spin will be, be more favoured in the future like, do you have any predictions on which facet of the game will be next exploited it, it's funny that you talk about that so I did I've just done a video for Craig Info which I think comes up in a couple of days where I talked about spin specialists in T20 batsmen who, who do well against spin and I want to get my numbers right there are eight of the top 50 scoring T20 batsmen in the world have a higher strike rate against spin than seam right and of those eight one of them Cameron Akmal goes at more than a run and over quicker against spin than quicks, right? Yet there are batsmen, uh, Dan Christian scores four runs and over quicker against seam than spin. So there are 28 batsmen who basically score at a run and over quicker against seam than spin and one batsman who, who does it against spin than seam. So that is a huge thing and we haven't been encouraging it. And I, I kept looking at it in different ways. Like maybe it's because they bat in the middle overs against spin. But then you look at it and batsmen actually dominate seam bowling in the middle overs and not spin in the middle overs. So it just seems to me that if you had a, if I was working with a county team at the moment, it's incredible. You have a look at it. All these county players, absolutely, these blast players and 100 players, absolutely smash the shit out of right arm seam. Like the, the top 10 list, I reckon, of, of strike rates, I think five of them are English county players, right? Uh, Phil Salt and Lewis Gregory and these sorts of guys, Alex Hales. And then you look at them against everything else and they are terrible against everything else right and essentially it's because ball machines and people in the nets you're facing right arm seam all the time if i was working with a young batsman now i'd be saying you've already got right arm seam done i don't want you to ever face right arm seam in the nets you've got this if you end up with a problem against right arm seam we'll take you back in you should be facing everything else as much as possible and working out how to do it so there are all these little subsections too. So there are players, I think it's Virat Kohli is brilliant when the ball spins away from him and terrible when the ball spins in. You've got these guys who are brilliant against finger spin of both kinds and terrible against wrist spin of both kinds and vice versa. You know, uh, there's all these different sort of subsections. So Martin Guptill, I think in the last three years has a strike rate of about 85 against left arm seam, right? Why would he face anything else in the nets other than left arm seam? You've got an opening batsman who can't face something that he's going to face in every game in international cricket. Unless, no, almost every team, I think, maybe outside of South Africa almost has a, you know, a gun left arm seamer or um, England is probably the other one, aren't they? So why is he not facing that all the time in the nets. So I think what you're going to get is, I think you're going to get players who are going to become specialists against spin because if you could strike at two runs and over quicker against spin, you're a million dollar player in T20 leagues around the world now. So I think that is a huge one. The other one is that we, we still don't really understand matchups. I wrote this piece in the World Cup about the way New Zealand use matchups. And so they're basically, I'm trying to think who they were playing, but they're playing Australia. And there were two left-handers in. So they stopped bowling Mitch Santner because they were like, well, he spins the ball into these left-handers. But when you break it down, he actually does better against left-handers than right-handers Mitch Santner. And also the players that he was bowling against weren't particularly good when the ball spins into them. So there are little things that we could start to exploit and understand a little bit better. And I think a lot of it just comes down to preparation and how we train players 50% of what you face in T20 cricket is right arm seam. 
right? But the thing is, in amateur cricket and underage cricket, 70% of what you face that's any good is right arm seam. You can't make it to the top level without being good against right arm seam. There's no batsmen who aren't good against right arm seam. They might not all smash it out of the park, right? So that is the batting side of things. The other, the bowling side of things is that left arm finger spin is a very, and off spin, both kinds of finger spin are very much seen as one dimensional spin. But the records don't really back that up. They actually do far, far better. And spin in general, there is, I don't think there's an over in T20 cricket where seam does better than spin right when it comes to economy rates so i think if there is there's one i'd have to go back and check the numbers so from over zero to over 20 spin does better than seam and when i say that people go oh yeah but what about the psl and the ipl i was like even in those leagues spin does better than seam right it, it, it's completely across the board that means that if you know with my kids literally once they show any skill at batting i'm just gonna <laughs> um ball spin to them from then on in because there's no point learning it. You can right arm seam is not a problem. So there are huge deficiencies within the game that I think not that hard. Another one is, and Cutler, you like this because you like spin. Why doesn't every spinner in the world bowl a knuckleball? Yeah, Tim, why don't you? Well, it's it's a tough one to keep the energy going around. But we've seen the, the likes of the Karim and whatnot that have come through. What you know, as you're talking, it begs the question: Why aren't we seeing teams come out with an entire spin attack then? Yeah, literally. Like, why why haven't we seen it? It's a very interesting thing, and I think it comes down to the way we think about T20 cricket. And also, you need specialists. So if you're going to do that, you would need a specialist. To, you need two spinners who are good at the death to be able to do that, which not enough spinners being given a chance to be specialists at the death. I think Adil Rashid is a brilliant death bowler, and he virtually never bowls there. So I think there will be entire spin attacks going forward. But I also think that like if you look at it, you, you almost want a swing bowler to bowl with a Michael Beer type bowler in, in, the, in the power play. Uh, you then want a couple of, you know, you maybe want a quick bowler and a couple of spinners in the middle. And then you want your death specialist. You can actually do that, but teams aren't really thinking about that yet. And they're not putting it together. But I want to go back to this knuckleball because put up your hands, Cutler. <laughs> put up your hands, right? Spinners have big hands. And if you make it as an international spinner, you have a big hands. Cutler's hands are not as big, and that's why he didn't make it, right? <laughs> Look, I knew there but was I knew there was one, one reason, and it's finally come. <laughs> <laughs> if you if you meet Giles Clark and you do a handshake with him, you lose your hand. Giles Clark? Uh, Giles Clark, that would be funny. Sorry, don't ever do him. <laughs> don't ever touch his hand. Ashley Giles, I meant, sorry. The good Giles. You, you see them have these huge hands. There's no, no reason why all international spinners shouldn't have a knuckleball because... It gives variation. It's the way that we think about these things that is the problem, right? So it doesn't matter if we go back to Leverlock or, or Benny Howe or any of these, or Mohammed Naveed or any of these sorts of guys. We're not thinking, we, we can't look at Benny Howe and, and understand what he is and why he's been successful because he's so different to everyone else. And those sorts of things are very hard to, to get our head around. So there are lots of inefficiencies within T20 cricket. For instance, we still see teams with set batsmen slow down in the seventh over. You should never have a T20 game where, where set batsmen are slowing down. New batsmen, di different thing. Set batsmen, my God, keep hitting the boundaries. So we don't think about these things correctly at the moment. We'll have part two of our chat with Jared next week, so make sure to subscribe to the Emerging Cricket Podcast if you haven't done so already, so you can tune in as soon as that drops. Pass the pot around and make sure to give us a five-star review. If you want to support us financially, go to Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Emerging Cricket, where you can support us from as little as $2 US a month. And that gets you access to extended cuts to a number of our podcasts. And you can have a say on the show's direction. For now, on behalf of Nick Skinner, Tim Cutler, and myself, Daniel Beswick, see you next week.